Thank you, Jesus. Are the pieces coming together? Remember what we talked about at the beginning yesterday, about the wisdom of God, which the Bible says is Christ Jesus, that it comes together, and when the pieces start to connect with each other, we start to see the fullness of the salvation of God. I know that's how I felt this morning. Thank you, Jesus. When you were speaking there about that we were slaves to one Lord, and now we're slaves to another Lord, I'm thinking of the theme we've been talking about the whole time. There are two kingdoms. There are two powers. There are two lords. And so he has rescued us from the power, the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Amen. Um, I'm going to see what we can do here um, with the time we have. Fortunately, Brother Ossie already really shared some of the things I had at the beginning, which is great. So we're, we've got a head start. So, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, be with us in this time, Jesus. God, Lord, give us exactly what you have for this hour, Jesus. Amen, Lord. Freshen our minds, Lord. Amen, God. Thank you for the work you're already doing, Jesus. Help us to continue, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I guess in some ways I could quote Brother Howard from yesterday and say that it has fallen to me um, to bring the bad news. Uh, in a sense, we're going to talk mostly about repentance here. Okay, so we've been talking about the incredible thing that Jesus has done for us. Now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the more difficult things that we've already mentioned that are required of us in order to avail ourselves of that grace and that mercy that he has given to us. Amen. But you already feel it working this morning, don't you? That it is the kindness of the Lord, as was said, quoted, that leads us to repentance. Amen. Who would ever go to, to die, which is what repentance is, we're going to talk about that, who would ever go to do such a thing unless there was an incredible motivation? Amen. But when we see the kindness of our Lord and Savior. It leads us to repentance. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. So we're going to talk about, what we're really talking about is the first step into the kingdom. This is the first step of exodus, of changing our worlds, of renouncing our old Lord, our old Master. Okay? <clears throat> so that we can come into the kingdom of God. Repent, Jesus and John the Baptist both said. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Amen. We see that God, the kingdom is coming, and so we say, God, how can I be part of it? Amen. And this is what makes the way. This is what allows us to take those first steps out of that dominion and towards the Lord. So the bad news is not really bad news. It's really good news. It's the gospel. Right? Repentance is the first step in the gospel. The gospel is the good news. You're recalling, I'm sure, everything that we saw in the, in the video yesterday about what that term gospel actually means, how encompassing it actually is. Well, if we boil that gospel down, what is the message of the good news, the enunciation of the kingdom? What is it? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Brethren, I declare to you the gospel 
which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. So that, in its essence, is the gospel. Pretty much everybody's going to agree with that. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message. Everybody knows that we're supposed to believe the gospel. And so this um, notion has come in that it's through faith we are saved, which of course we agree with. We're going to talk about that more after lunch. What that faith really looks like. How that faith really saves us. But of course the watered down version, that's really based in this false view of the atonement, is that all I have to do is believe that Jesus did it. Because I have to be reconciled to God, but it's not really me. It was, Jesus did it all, so there's nothing left for me to do. In fact, it would somehow even be dishonoring God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, if I were to pretend like it was my sacrifice that saved me. But as we just heard, it's not our sacrifice that saves us. It's our sacrifice that unites us to His sacrifice, which is what saves us. Amen. So the question, as Brother Rossi already said, really has to be, how do I avail myself of His sacrifice that saved me? And that's what the gospel is speaking to us about. So people want to interpret the gospel as being only the historic events of what happened to Jesus. So all I have to do is assent in my mind that He did it, and if I believe that He did it, then I'm saved. Okay? But there are some complications with that notion. Because the scriptures do not only say that we must believe the gospel, and of course, this kind of belief that I'm just referencing doesn't really encompass what believing means. Uh, to the Hebrews, always obedience and belief were one and the same. If you didn't obey it, then you didn't believe it, obviously. Okay, we could go into that, but we'll save that probably for this afternoon mostly. Okay, so, but the scriptures don't just say we must believe the gospel. They say we must obey the gospel. Right? In 2 Thessalonians 1, incidentally, you'll connect this with what we've just been talking about. It says that the day is coming when the Lord Jesus will be revealed with his flaming angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says the same thing. He says, for the time, 1 Peter 4, 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So the question becomes, how do we obey the gospel? This is not just a mental abstraction of what we need to think about what Jesus did. We must obey this message of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. So the clearest example, the clearest exposition of that message, I think we find in Acts 2. 
which I assume everybody here is, is familiar with. And you remember what's happened. It's, it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just fallen upon the first believers. And people are wondering what's happened. So without quoting it all to you, you know the story. They're asking, you know, what, what, what's going on with these people? So Peter stands up and preaches to them. And what does he preach in essence? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what he shares with them. They're, they're saying, what's going on? He says, well, let me tell you what's happened. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised up. Amen. So he shares with them, in more words than that, the gospel message. And so when those who heard him, they responded and they said, Wonderful. Now we know what happened. Now we're part of the church too. Amen. Got a little off track there. That's not what they said. Amen. They were cut to the heart. Amen. They were moved somehow. Maybe it was the kindness. It was also probably the, it was the realization that we felt earlier that God is because of our sin, that the whole thing has been subjected to futility. Amen. We're responsible for this. We crucified him. He had to die because of me. They felt that. So it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, men, brothers, what must we do in light of this message? What must we do? And Peter said, that's what I'm trying to tell you. That's the good news. You don't have to do anything. He's done it all for you. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Jesus. But what does he tell them? How do you, they're saying, what must we do to obey this gospel? And he says, you obey the gospel like this. Repent. The first step in obeying the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We become identified with Him, as has been quoted from Romans 6 already, in His death if we die also. Amen? Our death takes place through our repentance through that renunciation of the identity of our old lordship, of who we've been, of who we stand for, of who we are. And we say, I'm renouncing that. I'm, I'm going to become as a dead man to everything that I was so that I may be united to Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So that's how we obey the gospel. Amen. <clears throat> We would like to skip the death part, wouldn't we? <laughs> the fact of the matter is, two-thirds of the gospel is about dying. Amen. The death, the burial, and it comes first. And then the resurrection. Without the death, there can be no resurrection. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So when we see that, we see that actually death, in this sense, is the path to life. Amen. You remember what happened 
when uh, Cornelius and the, and the first Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter moved on with the, with the baptism and so forth. When he comes in Acts 11 and he, he's telling to the church, because they're a little up in arms about what's happened, and he tells them all what's happened. And what do they say in response when they hear what's happened? They say, they, it says they were silent, and then they said, they glorified God and they said, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Repentance leads to life. It's the only path that leads to life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. It's the fragrance of death, the aroma of death, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, to those who are seeing the kindness of our Lord. It is the aroma of life leading to life. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So this is the, the first foundation stone. If you remember in, in uh, Hebrews 6, he's talking about the foundation stones, the foundations of our faith, the elementary principles of our faith, he calls them. He says we're hoping to move on to these things and not have to lay them again, these, these foundations. And the first one that he lists is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And the next is the doctrine of immersions, plural in the Greek. And that's, unless you be born again of water and of spirit, it's baptism in the water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. So there it is again, the beginnings. It's the gospel. That's the foundation. This is where we start. Amen. So we want to talk about some counterfeits to repentance. The flesh is very interested in counterfeits to what dying really looks like. It's the most natural thing in our, all of our existence, isn't it? This is what we were talking about in the nonviolence seminar. This all connects together, you see, is that we want to save our life. Self-preservation is the dynamic of the human nature. Survival. So the flesh is not interested in dying. So there's got to be some way around this. We were, uh, when we were in Brazil, I just remembered this, um, we, we were uh, trying to help with the church there. It wasn't our church, but we'd been invited to help there for a season, and, and they, had a, um, they did a play at one point, and it was, it was Lazarus coming out of the tomb, you know, and they set up a... Uh, they set up a, a, a paper mache tomb in, in, in the front of the platform, you know, and they had one of their, their people in the play was inside of this paper mache box, you know, and at just the right moment when the music was coming to a culmination, you know, boom, the stone of the uh, paper mache blew aside and out came this guy, you know, and somehow it, it lacked the power that I think was there on the day when Lazarus did in fact come out of that tomb. Amen. And it was because, of course, we all knew he didn't die. <laughs> he was just laying down in there waiting for his cue. Amen. <laughs> but if he'd have really been dead, it would have felt a little different, wouldn't it? Amen. And we cheat ourselves 
And we cheat God's people when we act as if anything less than a real death to the flesh is needed. And we want to skip it. We want to minimize it. We want to get over it and just, because the flesh doesn't like it. And we want to make it into something less than it really should be so we can just get it over with and get on to the life. But the life is not going to be the life. It's going to be counterfeit too. Amen. Okay, so the first counterfeit I want to talk about is, um, and some of these are very well-meaning. I don't mean that people cook this up in their minds consciously saying, uh, I want to get away from obeying the gospel. Okay, some of these we, we, we can feel very sincere about them even. Okay, so the first counterfeit I want to talk about is, I think I have already repented. Everybody wants to believe they've already repented, right? Okay, we're, we're already done with it. I, I know that I did repent because I remember a time in my life when I, when I felt really terrible about some things I had done. I was very sorry. I was genuinely sorry. I felt terrible. So that's it, right? I've repented. Let's move on to other things. I felt bad. Okay? But we've got to acknowledge that the Bible speaks of two kinds of sorrow. There are two kinds of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 and 9 Paul has, this is the context of this, of course, he's rebuked the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. He's writing to them now after they've, been, after they've received his word. And he says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. There's a godly sorrow. That you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Okay, so feeling bad is not all there is to it. We can even be, in one sense, genuinely grieved, but that can actually take a kind of self-centered bent, if you will. It, it can be like, I can't believe it. I mean, I know it's my fault. And I wish I, I, I wish I could turn back the clock and I wish I hadn't have done that or said that or been that way. It's just terrible and uh, makes me so mad at myself and, and such, you know. But that's not all that's required. There's something about that that stays self-centered. And it's not really grieving over what we've done to God, what we've done to other people that would turn out and say, what must I do? I feel cut to the heart. What must I do? God, how do I, how can I make a change here? You see? Amen. Do you remember what happened with Esau? Hebrews warns us about Esau, right? right? Hebrews 12. He's warning us, beware, lest there be in any, lest there be this, there be a profane person among you like Esau. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance. Though he sought it diligently with tears, 
Did he feel bad? He felt bad. Now, I want to point out to you, I think some people misinterpret this verse. It can be a little confusing in the English grammar here. You, you could almost read it like he, he couldn't find repentance. Even though he searched for repentance with tears, he never found it. But that's not what it's saying. If you read in Genesis about what Esau was crying over, he was not seeking repentance. He was seeking the blessing. Okay, so listen again. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, comma, for he found no place of repentance. He was rejected because he found no place of repentance, though he sought it, meaning the blessing, diligently with tears. Amen? That's what he sought with tears. He, my father, is there not a blessing for me? See, my brother did this to me. He deceived me these two times, and, which was true on one level. But he was not acknowledging his sin. He thought he was a victim. And he felt terrible about the fact that now it's gotten away from me and now I've lost what I really wanted. I mean, it did mean something to me. And I, isn't there any way to crying and crying about it? But do you see? So the point is there's a difference. Just because we're real agitated, just because we feel bad, does not mean that we've repented. Amen? Okay. I think another... Uh, counterfeit or a place where we might stop short is that sometimes we assume we can we point to a point in our life or maybe we do this with others under our care maybe it's our children or those in our that we are trying to cover in the Lord or whatever amen and we we look at them and we say or we look at ourselves and we, we say I can point to a time in my life when my desires changed you know I was running after the world I was, uh, I was enjoying sin. I was rejecting God on the face of it. And at some point, I really did make a shift. I, set, I, I turned my face back towards the Lord. And this is part of repentance. I'm, not, I'm just saying it's not all of it. And, I, and I, I began to desire to do what was right. Something really changed. I can say this about my life, personally. I can look at a time, I know a, a time, I could tell you stories about a time when I changed from, I became aware that I genuinely wanted to do what was right. Amen? And so we can say, well, there it was. See, now I, I wanted to do what was right. So that was my repentance. Before I didn't even want to, but now I want to. So I guess I've repented. Well, it's part of it. But you remember how, how Paul speaks about that in Romans 7, you know? The good that I will to do, I, I still did not do. Because there's something at work in me. Who's going to deliver me, he says, from this body of death? Amen. So it, it's, it's good. It's part of it. I'm just saying that the shift in our will is not the only thing. It has to be accompanied by real action. By real recognition of what is actually needed that's actually going to bring us to Christ when we realize that we're actually incapable of what's completely needed. Amen? That we have got to come into relationship with Him because that's what's really needed. It causes us to turn out when we see that just my willingness, just my desire, according to my mind, to serve the law of God 
doesn't cut it. I've got to turn to Christ. I've got to come into relationship with Christ. Does that make sense? You follow me on that? Amen. And I already really mentioned the, the third one I had written down here, which was, well, I know I've already had a genuine experience, so it's over. This topic doesn't apply to me today because I already repented, but we've already been talking about that today. We know that can't be really true, is it? In fact, I would submit to you that if you feel like that this topic does not relate to you because you already got it over with, that that might be a sign that you're not repentant. You understand? Because repentance is not just something that we do or that we did. Repentance is a place that we live. Amen? Paul and Jesus both said we've got to die daily. We take up our cross every day. This is a place that we live in. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the definition of repentance. <coughs> there are several words in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament that are translated different places as repent. Really, all of them have a connotation of a turning, of a movement from one place to another place, of a relocation. We could say from one kingdom to another, couldn't we? Amen. It's a changing of centers. Naturally, we are centered in ourself. But when repentance begins to occur, that shift happens where we are no longer centered in self and we become centered in God, which is to be centered in love. Because God is love. Amen. So, repentance, if it's a, if it's a turning, could we not say that it is a revolution? It's revolutionary. If the change that is happening in our life is not revolutionary, I would submit to you that it might not be real repentance. Amen. This is supposed to be something that changes everything about us. But people don't go into revolutions. They don't start revolutions unless they're intensely dissatisfied with the condition of things, do they? Amen. There's got to be something in us that becomes intensely dissatisfied with where we are living in order to find that motivation, like we said before, to make the revolution and make the great turn, to be pulled up by the roots from where we've been planted, from where we naturally grow, and be planted into the kingdom of God. Amen. Uprooting is a good way to describe repentance. The commission of Jeremiah in the first chapter of Jeremiah, he's told, the Lord tells him, I'm sending you to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So here again we have two-thirds death and destruction in order to have the building and the planting and the life. Amen? The dying's got to come first. The tearing down has got to come first. Amen. Do you remember when the Pharisees came to John the Baptist because they wanted to be baptized? Remember what he said to them? You know, they want to be baptized because it seems like this is what everybody's doing and, and such, you know. And uh, let, let's do this too. All, everybody's doing it. And he says, you hypocrites, who warned you to flee from the judgment? to come? You're not cut to the heart. Amen. 
so he would not baptize him. Oh, that there were more churches today that would refuse to baptize people that weren't dead, that would refuse to bury people alive, that would hold up a standard of repentance and insist that it be genuine so that God's people are not cheated by counterfeits. Amen. So he shuts the door to it instead of saying, Amen, let's add some more to the numbers. Let's grow this thing. You know, if they're saying they want it, let's do it. No, he says, in his essence, he's saying, you don't know what you're asking. You've got the wrong motivation here. So he says, who warned you to flee from the judgment to come? Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He's implying, and then, then we'll talk about baptism. <laughs> Amen. As he says, see, even now, the axe is laid at the root. What are we talking about? We're talking about a system, a tree. And he's saying this has got to be uprooted. We've got to tear this thing out by the root. There's got to come a blade of truth and conviction into your life that cuts the taproot of the place where you live, of the soil that feeds you. Remember what we talked about, cultures? We're going to get into that more in a minute. Amen. There's got to come some severance that comes in here. This is called dying. Amen. You've got to cut your ties to what we had before. I'm going to write this one down, but do you remember what Paul says in uh, Romans 7, in the beginning there? He's just been speaking in chapter 6, of course, about that we must be united with him in death in order to be united with him in the resurrection, that we've got to be buried with him. He's been speaking about this death and burial the whole time, really. And he continues the conversation in 7, and he says, uh, Do you not know, brothers, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? This is just what we were talking about with atonement, right? There's some binding power that we're under. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband, or we could say from the law of her former master. Amen? Amen? Former Lord. So it's through death that we are released. The old master has got to die. So he says, so then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she is married to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit unto God. Amen? So you see here again, remember what we talked about yesterday about adultery and confusion, that the, that the illusion always coming from the serpent is that you can have both. You can serve two masters. He's saying again to us here, no. <laughs> if you're really going to serve God, you're going to have to die. The old master is going to have to die. You're going to have to put the axe to the root. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> this has to be voluntary, doesn't it? Brother Ossie quoted it earlier. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. 
but I freely lay it down. There is a judgment that is coming. There is a death that is coming on every single one of us that will not be voluntary. Amen. And the only way we're going to escape that death is if we beat death to the punch by choosing to die to that which is really already killing us. Amen. We've got to make that voluntary choice. I lay down my life just like my Lord did. I'm going to choose to die to my old master so that I can be united with Christ and in then in that day I can be saved. Amen. I can escape the second death. Amen. So when that becomes the motive of our hearts, when we're cut to the heart, when we feel it, when we see the kindness of our Lord, when we feel this conviction and this motivation, and we say, I've got to be, I've got to die. Let me ask you, how does that happen? Or what is the agent that can accomplish this, this death in us? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Brother Ossie said. Amen? The Word of God is the agent. We talked earlier about the flaming sword that stands in the, guarding the way back to the garden, back to reconciliation, back to atonement or oneness with God. Amen? There's a sword between us and relationship with God. That sword is the Word of God. Amen? That divides asunder between flesh and spirit, Hebrews 4. Amen? That pairs away. That brings death to all that which cannot go back into the garden. It brings death that we might have life. We think of the sword as an implement of death, do we not? It's a weapon. It kills. It cuts. It hurts. But in this case... We could think of it more like somebody who's got a terminal cancer that's killing him. And he says, if I can't get rid of this cancer, I'm going to die. And so we say, I will willingly submit myself to the scalpel of the surgeon, the sword of the Word of God. It's going to bring me life. It's going to hurt. <laughs> it's not going to be fun. And nobody would, I mean, who says, you know what? I've heard that surgery is life-saving. I'm going to go try it. <laughs> You're not going to go try it unless you've gotten a diagnosis that you believe. Amen? You're going to have to be convinced and convicted in your heart that you need it. But even that isn't going to happen without the Word of God. Amen? And so I hope you're hearing me not just from the standpoint of Oh God, what do I need? I hope you are hearing me from that standpoint. But also, God, how do I bring others to repentance? Well, I can't. You can't. Only God can bring people to repentance. But do we play a role in that? Yes, we do. Because we are supposed to bring the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Amen? The Word of faith which we are preaching to you. That word's supposed to be in your heart and in your mouth. Amen? 
Thank you, Jesus. So the Word of God brings the conviction. That's what brought the conviction on the day of Pentecost. First, they had a frame-changing experience, if you remember what we talked about. I'm talking not just about the people in the upper room. I'm talking about those who saw it. They said, what is this? What is going on here? And they had wrong interpretations because of their wrong frames and everything. They could not even conceive what was going on. But something got their attention because God was moving sovereignly. Amen. And when they saw it, they wanted to know. So Peter brought a pleasant um, placation to them, didn't he? (laughs) The Word of God was pretty cutting that day. It cut to the heart Amen. And motivated them to say, okay, what do we need to do? And then the Word of God came again. Amen. So it's the Word of God that continues. It brings us to repentance. It aids us in that repentance. And it carries us through our whole life. We're sustained by the Word of His power. The life only continues as long as that Word continues. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We've got a break, don't we? And, and Jeremiah said, or the Lord said, I believe through Jeremiah, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. So the word is called a hammer. It's called a sword. It's called a fire that burns up all the dead works that are not from God. Amen. But it's also called light. It's the creative force. Nothing exists without the word. Amen. And no new creation of God is going, to consi- is going to exist without the Word of God that can come into the void of our lives and say, let there be light. Amen. And make from nothing a creation of God, a new kingdom. If any man is in Christ, do you hear that a little differently after this morning? If any man is in Christ, there is a new creation. It doesn't even say in the literal, that he is a new creation, although that's also true in an individual way, that he's not even in the original Greek. If you are in Christ, a new creation exists. A new world. We have changed locations. We have moved into the place, amen, through the blood of Jesus. We've been united with him and gone through the Jacob's ladder. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so we've established, I hope, by now, that what's needed is a demolition. What's needed is a death. What's needed is a tearing down. Okay, let me give you an example that Brother Blair gives uh, in his book, Dying to Death. Which, by the way, I meant to to tell you, I love the subtitle to that book. I love the title, too. You understand what it means, dying to death, in terms of what we're saying. But the subtitle, where did it go? He says, a unique and profound vision of the missing essential of repentance in restoring not only the soul, but also the church. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. In that book, he gives the example. Uh, they were, you know, of course, the church, our church began in Manhattan. And Manhattan is famous for its skyscrapers. And so... Uh, I think they got to see firsthand some of what goes into building such an incredible building. Amen. Jesus, of course, said that unless we build on the rock, our work is not going to stand. You can do some building, but if you don't build it on the rock, it's just a matter of time. 
until some storm comes. It may look good for a while, but there's going to be a storm comes that's going to knock it down unless you've built on the rock. Amen? What do you say to Peter also? You remember, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. So in building these skyscrapers, <clears throat> they have to first go down before they go up. And actually, in many cases, there's something that precedes even that. And the problem is that there's already a building sitting where you want to build. Amen? There's already something standing there. And what we would like to do in the flesh, both for ourselves and for others, we say, you know what? It's, yeah, it's got some problems. It's, uh, you know, it's cracked and it's, the foundation is, is busted and everything, but it's got potential. I mean, we'd hate to throw the whole thing away. Somebody worked hard on this. So we just want to fix it. We want to patch it. We want to repair it. Maybe add another floor on the top because it's not big enough for what God is trying to do. We kind of sense that. Let's just add to it. But you know how that's going to go. Amen. So the first thing we've got to do when it's been built wrong, we've got to tear down what's there. We've got to get rid of it, tear it down, and then we've got to dig. Because if we just build on top of this shifting sand, it's not going to work. And so for a long period of time, nothing is even visible above ground. As they dig, 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 dig until they hit bedrock. Amen. Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn, excuse me. My Russian accent isn't very good. Said that repentance is the first bit of firm ground underfoot upon which we may begin to build. Amen. We've got to get down to where we know we're going to build something that's going to last when the storms come. Amen. So there are stages that we're going to go through. And if I could just outline them real quick, and we're not going to be able to get into all of them. But first, we've got to tear down what we've built. Those are our dead works. Repentance from dead works. Then we've got to dig down to bedrock. Once we've demolished what we've built, we've got to say, so what is going on in this ground that's underneath me that I take for granted? What do I need? What's the history that I've got to dig through? What's the past and the ancestry and the, the whole concepts and frames in which I've been trained and nurtured and in which I think, which come naturally to me? What, is, what in all of that do I need to just dig through the rubble until I know that I'm standing only on the bedrock of the Word of God in my life? Amen. And really, there's still a third stage once we get down to that bedrock, and that would be called breaking on that bedrock. <laughs> Remember Jesus said uh, that we got to fall on the rock and be broken. If we don't, the rock's going to fall on us and grind us to powder. So there again we see the, the voluntary nature of this. <laughs> there are consequences that are coming. But if we can choose to let our ideas, our ambitions, our plans, our good desires, what we're going to do for God, all that stuff, our good intentions, if we could fall on the rock of His will, His word, His plan, His authority, His lordship, His kingship in our life, only then can we truly begin to build. Amen. And this has to be happening in every life in order for the church to be built together. As we, as lively stones, 
are being built together. If we don't insist that every person that would claim to be part of the body truly goes through this process of repentance, then we're going to be unequally yoked with people who don't have the same foundation. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It's going to fail. Okay. <clears throat> we can skip a little section here because uh, one of the things I was going to talk about was how did we get where we are? And I was going to talk about the fall some, but I think we've covered that. <laughs> the choices that man made that got us into this ground that we've been planted into quite naturally. Amen. But I want to point out one thing to you while we're here. We're going to talk about it more in a couple days. The battleground that we're occupying as we try to find this place of repentance is chiefly in one place. It's in our minds. And when we look at what happened at the fall, we can see why that is. Because what was held out to them was what? You shall be as gods. You'll have your own lordship over your own life. You'll do what you want. And you will know for yourself, you will know for yourself what is good or evil. Notice that the devil doesn't come forthrightly and say, you know, if you eat of this tree, it's an accusation against God. We won't get into all that right now. But, you know, God knows that if you eat of this tree, that your eyes will be opened and you will be as God yourself. He doesn't say, if you'll eat of this tree, then I will be the ruler of this world that was given to you. He doesn't say that. He's, he's a liar. So he holds out this deception that says, this, this dominion that you already kind of feel that's some legitimacy in maybe because God really did give it to you. He wants us to reign as kings with him. You can have it all. It doesn't need to be subsidiary. You can be God himself. And actually God's a little worried about that. And that's why he's been deceiving you and not telling you and won't let you eat of this and all that. So he basically says God is, is the devil and says, I'm offering you that your eyes may be opened. Amen? It's the, it's the anti-type to salvation. But the whole thing, and it says, when they saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and desirable to make one wise, they fell for it. Amen? The battleground is in the mind because we want to decide for ourselves. Our mind can be our ruler, can't it? It is by default the natural ruler of our lives. So I just wanted to establish that in our minds. <laughs> Amen. The Lord is not asking us to throw away our brains. Amen. He wants to be Lord of our minds. We've got to love him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Amen. When the mind assumes lordship, when the mind assumes preeminence, that's where we got the problem. Amen. If we weren't using our minds, we wouldn't be understanding anything we're talking about today. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. What can we do with what we have left here? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It's going to be important 
that we recognize the comprehensive picture of what repentance entails. So I think sometimes people get real focused on their own little world and we think in terms of things that I did. You know, we've got to tell God that we're sorry that we robbed the bank, whatever it was. That's good. <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> Amen. And we want, but that's narrowing it down to things that we did. That's not acknowledging why we robbed the bank. That there was a desire, there was a motive, there was a nature, a carnal nature inside of us that motivated us to grab for that wealth or that power or that, that put that competitive spirit inside of us, whatever it was. There is a nature in us that we've got to repent of. It's not being sorry, just being sorry for things that we've done. The things that we did are just the fruits of who we are. So what's got to die and we got to repent of is who we are. Amen. And who we are is actually even a little bigger than just our own life. No man is an island unto himself. Amen. Brother Blair tells another story from New York about a family, or a couple I think it was, that he knew there, that they were moving into the area <coughs> and it was terrible part of New York at the time, slum, tenement buildings, you know. And they realized that, you know, we could go to the good side of town and buy a nice piece of property, but it's going to cost us a fortune. So instead, we can spend way less. This is always the temptation. Let's cut the costs, right? Jesus didn't say cut the cost. He said count the costs. And the costs were kind of high, as I recall. <laughs> Amen. They thought, we can save some money here, and we can go into one of these slum tenement buildings, and we can buy this old, nasty apartment for dirt cheap, and then spend a minimal amount of money, in, comparatively speaking, and fix it up and live in a palace inside of this rotting building. And that's exactly what they proceeded to do. They got this place for next to nothing, and they fixed it all up. A little putty and a little paint goes a long ways. <laughs> and they made it really nice. Nice furnishings, nice. It looked great. But it only took a few days before one of the water mains in the building sprung a leak in their ceiling. And all the sheetrock started caving in. And then the sewer system stopped working in the building. And so their toilets were backing up all over the bathroom. And Amen. And then there were power failures and, you know, and then the floor started to conk because the foundation was off and, amen, and it turned out it wasn't such a great idea. And they came to the revelation that, you know what, just what we've decided to do in our little world is not going to be enough to survive. We're going to have to situate ourselves in, a, in the right context, in the right ground, in the right relationships. We're going to have to acknowledge what it is around us that is going to lead us to failure in spite of our intentions. We're going to have to know what's been going on here. So that requires taking a look at the whole system that gives us life. Here we're back to kingdoms again, amen? Back to the system that gives us life, amen? So you're just in the middle of this building, but you're ignoring the fact that there are infrastructures that you're depending on for your pretty little apartment. We're going to have to have a look at those too. <laughs> And the change is going to have to be a little more total than you might have been thinking. It's not a matter of just scrubbing up your little life. It's a matter of being transplanted 
into a place where your work, where the work of the Lord really will not be in vain because you have been planted into a new system, part of a new tree. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. You, uh, you think of the family tree, even. Right? We all, by natural, we have natural birth into a family tree. That means, even by genetics, we have inherited a nature. I don't know about your family, but in my family, it wasn't all good. There are family traits that I could start to delineate to you that I'm not proud of. So coming to repentance, in some ways, you know, in the Old Testament, there was always an emphasis on acknowledging the sins of our fathers. Why is that? Because it's what, it's what we derived our birth from. It's what we got both by nature, what we naturally inherited, and by nurture. Because they were the ones that raised us. This was the culture. This was, remember we talked about the two mothers, Jerusalem and Babylon. This was what we were nurtured in. Whether it's our natural family, whether it's our, the nation that we're part of, the culture that we're part of, we're really back to culture is what I'm talking about. So coming to a real repentance that's going to last cannot just be this isolated individual thing that doesn't consider the past, doesn't consider the surroundings, doesn't consider how we were raised or the traditions that we inherited from our church fathers or all that stuff. It's going to be an effort in futility, an exercise in futility, if we don't expand the picture a bit. You see what I'm saying? I can't go real far with that right now. But I'm just trying to broaden our vision of what repentance really entails. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because God is trying to graft us into a new tree, the tree of life, amen, into a new temple, the building that God is building, so that we're not situating our little life or our little church in the context of the building, the Tower of Babel that man is building, amen, and saying we're going to fix it up and make a really nice room so that all the other people in the Tower of Babel, you know, uh, can marvel at our apartment and how nice it is. We're saying, no, we're going to forget that building we're going we're gonna to demolish that building. We're going to be part of what God is building. Amen. It's going to be something entirely new, entirely different, not dependent on any of those systems of thought, of those systems of dependence. It's going to be self-sufficient and whole. It's going to have life within itself. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, let's, let's take... Uh, I've got some rollover minutes left. Let's take a few things, minutes here and just talk about... We're not halfway yet, by the way. Amen. But we've covered some good stuff. Okay, so let's talk for just a minute about works of death. Okay, every, Jesus said you will know a tree by its fruit. Amen. Every tree produces fruit after its kind. Dead works. What are dead works? Repentance from dead works. We already said it. Dead works, there's a reason there's an emphasis on dead works, I think, in that Hebrew 6 scripture. Most people don't have a real hard time acknowledging, for example, that they should not have robbed the bank. Okay, robbing the bank is not probably fall into the category of dead works. 
Okay, we, we, know, we recognize certain overt things and we say, well, obviously, that was sin. And so we know we need to die to that. We know we shouldn't have robbed the bank. Amen. But dead works, I think, more often is going to refer to things that we thought we did right. This is that back to that renovation idea, you know, that in my life there is a mix of good and bad. My tree happens to bear both thorns and figs, contrary to the Word of God. Amen? So all that I really need to do is uh, some modifications. I, need to, I do good things and I do bad things. I, I am sometimes bad and sometimes good. So I need to get rid of the bad things that I've done and the bad things that I sometimes act like and just keep the good things that I've been doing. Because I've actually been making an effort for quite some time and surely that counts for something. Amen. But there's nothing good that doesn't come from God. Amen. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Amen. So the point here is not that no one has ever done anything that was right. The question is, does that define who we are? Is that what we should take as the measure of our nature? Amen. Or do we not also need to come to repentance for thinking that our good works had to do with our righteousness and that that was going to save us? Do you see what I mean? I'm not being able to get into this as much as I might like to. But there is a sense in which our good intentions can sometimes be the biggest obstacle, I think, to coming to repentance. Because we're so desperate to hang on to what we feel like is, but Lord knows I've been working at this effort over here. I've genuinely been trying to help with that, or I've been preaching the best I know, or whatever. Amen. And Lord is saying, Amen. Whatever's been done for God is going to stand, but as far as your heart, you need to let it go. You need to surrender and acknowledge that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. And that even what we thought we were doing right, if there's any pride in it at all, if there's anything that we think derives from us, it's dead. And a lot of things are done in the name of God that are not even God's will. Why else would Jesus say that so many people are going to be surprised on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and the other thing in your name? He's going to say, I didn't know you, you workers of iniquity. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <coughs> the nature of dead works comes from the fall, where we think we can decide for ourselves not only what is evil, but what is good. Amen? So we can come up with programs, we can come up with plans, we can do, we can, we, whatever, we go on mission trips, we can do all kinds of incredible things, we can make all kinds of sacrifices, and it's all good stuff. We thought, we decided it was. But it's, it's not answering the question of whether it was truly done in obedience to God, whether it was being done in submission to His Lordship. Amen. So there's this detached view of being able to decide for ourselves and let our mind decide, you know, I think the best program right now would be this. Instead of truly being led by the Holy Spirit. We're still really operating from that standpoint of the fall. From that illusion that I'm going to, 
walk the line between good and bad instead of surrendering completely to God and saying, you know what, I don't need to try to figure this out, work at it really hard and come up with a good plan. I need to come into relationship with God. <laughs> I need to stick with him in the garden. I need to, in, in our case, I need to find my way back into that garden. And that way is not going to come through Greek philosophy and through my minds and somehow ascending up to God through my brain. That way is going to come through direct relationship with God and through his spirit, through his word, through his truth. When we said that the word of God was the agent that brings change, that places a responsibility on us to place ourselves within reach of that word. To place ourselves into the context, into the garden where God doesn't have to be silent. Amen? Remember yesterday? Where we hear him. Where he has access. Where he's the husbandman. You understand? So the path is all about relationship. So we can sum it up by saying it like this. Anything that substitutes for a relationship with God in the Spirit and with Jesus Christ whom He has sent, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him, and the church is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So we're connecting the body of Christ here on earth with that too, aren't we? Or not we, Paul does. Amen? Anything that substitutes for a covenant relationship with God is a dead work. It's not bringing us into direct connection that brings life. And that's what all those church fathers lost. They lost the connection to God. They were puffed up, as Paul says, in their vain imaginations. Remember that scripture? I can't quote it to you exactly, but it's where he talks about they have visions of angels and all this stuff. They're real religious about it. But they're puffed up in their fleshly minds having lost connection to the head. Amen? So anything that we get, we're all about religion, just like the people in Acts 17, the Greeks in Acts 17. But we have lost connection. We don't even know who he is anymore. Are you connecting the dots with what we've been talking about? Amen. Those are dead works. That's us trying to do our thing instead of saying, God, I've got to come into relationship as your child. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Let me jump to a summary here, okay? Thank you, Jesus. This is not really a summary, but in some ways... It's a place where I'd like to leave you. <clears throat> the question has been asked. Brother Rossi shared a whole meeting on this a while back that was wonderful. The question is often asked for people who are genuinely seeking repentance. How do I know when I'm there? Part of the reason that question is asked is because we do come to an awareness that this is an ongoing process. Like we said, it's not something that we just get over with and say... Phew, I'm glad that dying part is over with. It's something that is ongoing. And yet it seems like there is some core shift that's got to happen even in order to make the commitment of baptism and enter the kingdom so we can get started carrying that cross and dying daily. So there's this core change that's got to happen. So people ask the question, well, if repentance is dying, how do I know when I'm dead? And I would like to say again, we know a tree by its fruits. That's what John the Baptist said. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so let's talk about two obvious manifestations of bad fruit and good fruit. Okay, if we're manifesting the bad fruit, we know we're not dead yet. If we're manifesting the good fruit, we can say 
that something has happened. Okay, so the bad fruit that I think was one of the, the clearest indicators is that we're no longer trying to preserve ourselves. Remember, self-preservation is at that root of that carnal nature. He wants to survive. So we talked about it in, in uh, really clear terms when we talked about nonviolence yesterday, really obvious terms of, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Ah, uh, yes, but when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Amen. He didn't have it yet, did he? Peter didn't have it. He, he thought he did. He had the intention. But when it came down to it, his fear got the best of him. His self-preservation, his survival instinct said, I can't even confess that I know the man or I might get the same punishment. Amen. Amen. So he hadn't, he hadn't gotten there yet. Though we know that he did. Amen. So, defensiveness is a key fruit of the carnal nature. When God speaks to us, when His Word comes to us, in whatever form, maybe it's in, in the secret places of our own heart, maybe it's in relationship with those that He sends to us, in whatever form it is, maybe it's through the Bible, God's trying to speak something to us, and we say, well, yeah, but... Well, yes, I, well, it wasn't really like that. Let me explain. Brother, I've got a concern for you. Mm -hmm, go ahead. You know that kind of thing? It, it takes so many different kinds of forms. It even takes the humble form, you know. Yes, sir, amen. Thank you for sharing that with me. I don't believe a word that you're saying, but I'm not going to say so to you because my image is to be humble and sweet about it. <laughs> Amen. But all we're really doing is defending ourselves. Uh, 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 uh. When Jesus, when we come to Jesus and say, Lord, I, oh, that you would heal my daughter. And he says, uh, I wasn't sent to you. You're a dog. Brother Leslie once preached a message on this, and he said, how many of us would have had the response of that woman? Wouldn't we have been tempted to say, you could have mentioned that I'm a registered Cocker Spaniel. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> we are desperate to find some good thing in us. And when the Word of God comes to us to divide asunder and to discern that all the intents of the heart are evil, we are just so desperate to defend it. So if you want a measure of how you're doing in this dying process, how your children are doing, whether they're converted, amen, people in your church, whatever it is, how do you respond to the Word of God? Not just the Word of, that we like to think is the Word of encouragement, but the Word that the Bible says is the Word of encouragement, which is the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews 12 that addresses us as sons. Do so you want to be in relationship with me as a son to a father? Well, then I'm going to speak to you words of discipline. That means correction, and it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be painful at the time, but afterwards, repentance is going to lead to life. Amen? How do we respond when that word comes? Brother Blair has given the example before of when he's been hunting, and you take down something, say it's an elk, Elk can be quite dangerous when they're alive. 
especially if they're really mad because you just shot it. <laughs> so when that elk goes down, and you start, and it's laying there, and you approach it, the first thing you're going to do is what? Make sure it's dead. How are you going to do that? Are you going to, are you going to walk over to it, sit on its back, and say, let's see what happens? <laughs> we could make the example even tougher. What if it was a bear? You're bear hunting. <laughs> Amen. You're going to want to know that it's dead. And so you might throw rocks. Boom. And if he says, ow, <laughs> he's not dead. You might get a stick and poke him in the eyeball. Amen. And if he, he's not dead. Amen. But when there is no resistance, when it no longer matters, amen, there's nothing left to defend. We've been hidden in Christ. Amen. We've, we've lost, we don't care about that man. All we care about is to make sure that he's dead. He's our enemy. I hate this man. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So if we're wondering, if you're wondering in your own heart, then just ask yourself. Or have, hopefully you've got others in your life that will also ask you. What happens when we poke you? Or maybe, you, maybe it's your children. We need to do a little poking. I don't mean... You know what I don't mean. Well, let's just try this out and be really tough on them and see what happens. It needs to be the Word of God. Amen. But when that Word comes, what is the response? That is the bottom line question. How do we respond? Because James says we all stumble in many things. This is not a matter of achieving perfection in our flesh. As long as we're here in this world, we're chained in a sense to this dead body. We're going to be dragging it with us everywhere we go until we are finally released from it in the kingdom that is to come. Amen. But even while we're here, we can live in victory over it, can we not? But we're going to stumble. We're going to fail. We're going to, we're, we're, God knows we're but grass. We're going to make mistakes. But when the, our Father comes to us and says, you shouldn't have done it that way. Amen. What is going to be our response? Look at Peter after his conversion when even Paul had to correct even Peter. He said, I rebuked him to his face in front of the whole church. And, and Peter said, I can't believe he's talking to me that way. I'm, I mean, I'm the one with the king's keys to the kingdom. I'm the one that brought the first message to the Gentiles and everything. Paul, he's an add-on. You know? He's not acknowledging all the good that I've done and all the truth, how God has used me. He would presume to correct me, even though I'm a leader of the church. That's not what we see from Peter, is it? Amen. That thing that, of course I'll go with you. Of course I'm dead. I've got to demonstrate it in the flesh, you know. That thing was really dead in him, wasn't it? Because after that whole account that Paul tells us about in Galatians, Peter's still writing about Paul when he says he's, he writes things that are hard to understand. But he says, our beloved brother Paul. There's no conflict. There's no issue going on. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Do you remember the promise to Peter when he had finally gone out and wept bitterly? When he'd finally seen that his confidence in his own goodness and his own plans and his own intentions wasn't going to cut it? That when it came down to it, when the storms really started blowing, that his house collapsed? 
when he finally saw that, and then the best thing that could have possibly happened happened. The Jesus that he had betrayed, that he had crucified in a sense, rose from the dead. And Peter was so excited about it, he couldn't even wait for the boat to get to shore. Amen. Because he wanted relationship. He wanted a relationship with God. And when he gets there and, he, and Jesus begins asking him, do you love me? Do you have the kind of love that would lay down your life for me? It's really what he was saying before. And Peter's a little reluctant now, at this point, to claim that he's got that kind of love. So he ends up saying, Lord, you know all things. You know I've only got this phileo. We don't have time to get into that right now. But, which just means that I, I have affection. But would I lay down my life? I better not be claiming that right now. And the promise of the Lord to him was, he says, when you were young, you walked where you wanted to go. You girded yourself up. Amen? You shall know for yourself good and evil. <laughs> you girded yourself up and you walked where you pleased. But when you are older, another is going to come and gird you up and take you, carry you in a way that you would not go. And it said he spoke this to indicate the death by which Peter would glorify God. Amen? I don't think it was bad news really to Peter that day, was it? Death is always a sobering thing, yes. But it was not bad news to him because Peter, he knew where he was going on his own power. Amen? He had come to a place where he was, I need it. I need it. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's tarry. Let's seek God until we are endued with the power from on high. The power to bring glory to God with my life. Amen? To totally surrender to Him and let Him carry me in a way that I could have never gone in the flesh. Amen? It's by our death that we bring glory to God that the resurrection occurs. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, so just one more thing. Do you understand what I just said? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So on the other side, a good tree bears good fruit. Amen? So what is this fruit of the tree of life? Paul talks to us about it in that scripture in 2 Corinthians 7 11 where he contrasts the two kinds of sorrow. And he says, I thank God that you sorrowed with a godly sorrow and it led to repentance which brings salvation. So he says in verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourself. I think the word is apologia in Greek. Amen. Acknowledgement, confession. What indignation against the sin, most of all in yourself. What fear of God. What vehement desire for God. What zeal. What vindication for ourselves. No, for the name of God. We care about His reputation, about His name. Amen? So he's saying, I can tell you came to repentance because something has come alive in you. You didn't just say, all right, I get it. I'm the worst person in the world. It's true. <laughs> Amen? You, the, the, the motion of turning is both from and towards at the same time. The first foundation is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Amen? Amen? So the fruit of repentance is faith. It's belief in the power of God. It's saying, I know, I can feel that just at this moment where I had nothing left, 
The power of Christ Jesus has entered my life. Amen. And through Him, I can run through a troop and leave over a wall. Amen. Some zeal, some fire, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit, comes into your life. And you feel like, with man, that's me, that's my carnal nature, with man, it was impossible. But now that he's died, and we've, we're only identified with God, everything feels possible. I am so full of faith about what God can do, even through me, because I'm not me anymore. It's no longer me, but it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Those who belong to Christ, he says in Galatians 5, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the passage where he's talking about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. But he says here that we know you sorrowed in a godly manner. Look at the desire it produced in you. We've crucified those fleshly desires when they saw the fruit that it was desirable to make one wise. We've lost, we've died to the motivations. Amen. And they haven't just been cut off, they've been replaced. Sin is never going to be overcome just by sweeping your house clean. If you just sweep it clean and don't fill it up, we know what happens, don't we? Jesus told us. It's just going to get worse. But when it's a real cleaning, we're cleaning it for company. We're cleaning it for a new residence. Amen. So it's our des old desires have been replaced with this faith, this zeal, this desire for our heavenly husband. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to feel like we've been translated from one place into the place of salvation. Amen. And we're going to feel all those feelings towards God and towards our brothers. We're going to know that we have passed from death to life because of the love in our hearts that we feel from the brothers. No, for the brothers. <laughs> Amen. I'm just so glad God loves me. Amen. That's good. That's how we even know what love is. But when you have passed into the place where God is, then His love lives in you. <laughs> Amen. And your life is defined by love for the brothers. Amen. So that's how we know that we've passed from death to life. That Amen. That we have died to what was killing us.